Hello and welcome to the Starling Podcast, a podcast about how we built Starling Bank, a bank offering a mobile-only bank account. I'm your host, Jason Maud. Today we'll be discussing how we manage incidents. When something goes wrong, how do we diagnose the problem, communicate with our customers and ultimately fix the underlying issue? First, I'll let today's guests introduce themselves. Hello, I'm Sarah, formerly of customer service, now working in marketing. So I work with uh, social media and sort of events and management based on that, really. Uh, and I'm Sam Everington. I'm a principal engineer at Starling, so I'm responsible for uh, ultimately the banking system being on, along with a number of other engineers. Fantastic. So uh, both two good people to have <laughs> discussing this issue. So let's first ask the question, what do we mean by an incident? What classes as an incident? Uh, so incidents can come in many shapes and sizes to us. Uh, they can be everything from the obvious. There's an issue in one of our systems. Something is unavailable. Someone can't use the mobile app or use their card or make a payment. Uh, cards and payments being some of the most critical areas. Uh, a number of incidents, though, can also occur from external factors. So it might be another bank or another participant in the payment systems is having a problem. Uh, they're unable to accept payments and therefore our customers can't send payments to them. Uh, or their systems have made a mistake uh, and have made problems on our customers' accounts. They've double charged for something or undercharged for something. Uh, and so although our systems are all up and operating normally, we still have to manage an incident because a team needs to be assembled and communications put together uh, and the impact on our customers minimised. Good. So we can have um, various different severities of incident, I guess, then ranging from a complete loss of functionality down to a minor outage affecting just a few customers. Yes. So we use four severity classifications, roughly. Um, Sev4, when we classify it that way, it basically means it can wait until the next working day. We're kind of fine. Sev3s uh, are impacting a small number of customers on a a non-critical area of functionality, so we need to deal with them soon and we'll probably get some noise as a result. Uh, but we can manage it over a period of time. Uh, SEV2 and SEV1s are the much more severe incidents. SEV2 is a fairly substantial piece of functionality, uh, not working for a significant number of users, and SEV1 is a, a full-blown outage on the bank. So when an incident occurs, how do we find out about that? Uh, what sort of... Uh, uh, contact do we get from our customers Sarah? Uh, so there's a variety of ways that our customers contact us if it's not through the app directly so through chat or call uh, we do see quite a lot of um, content on social media so it's usually people tweeting at us or DMing us in some case uh, just to let us know and often asking us if we're aware of anything that's happening. Um, that tends to be the usual thing that we see um, if we haven't already picked up on it as a bank, which we tend to do pretty quickly. Mm. So. Yeah, so there's a variety. They get in touch with us through social media, mm -hmm. through our community, mm -hmm. you know, variety of different ways. Yes. Yeah. And the staff are there 24-7 to answer chats and calls. So if there's a problem that customers have noticed, we generally hear about it mm -hmm. very fast. Mm. And do we normally get a lot of people uh, contacting us if there's an incident or an outage? Not necessarily. It tends to be... Um, people that are very sort of specialised in their interests with the bank who are a bit more comfortable contacting us saying that there's an issue. Um, usually tends to be mostly over our customer service, so via the app or calling us up. But the people that are a little bit more passionate, I would say, tend to go over social. Um, obviously, they we pick it up that way. Mm. 
And there's a natural human instinct, I think, to, to try again as well. If your card gets declined in the shop, you'll probably run it through once more before getting in touch. Or if you're on a mobile, mm-hmm. your mobile often has dodgy signals, so you'll pull to refresh a few more times to give it an extra chance before getting in touch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's how we find about uh, out about the uh, incidents via our customers. How else could we find out about incidents? Or do we have internal monitoring that lets us know that something's going wrong? Yes. So while customer service is 24-7, we don't actually have engineers sat there watching the system 24 hours a day. Uh, we built this platform to monitor itself and, and basically make noise and let us know when it's unhappy about something. Um, so there's a whole number of systems and infrastructures built around monitoring the health on our systems, the bits you'd expect from CPU and memory usage and things. Uh, but actually more useful is monitoring for the presence of services. A really good measure for us on card availability is have we authorised a card transaction successfully in the last 30 seconds or so? Because 24 hours a day, we're authorising cards every second. So if you see a gap, actually the absence of traffic can be the best way to pick up the sign of a fault before anyone else notices it. Uh, So there's a lot of tools there. And if the tools aren't happy, if they suspect something's wrong, uh, or we can't connect to MasterCard or Faster Payments on the connectivity probes, Uh, then the system will automatically wake up the on-call engineer. So although we're not working 24-7, there is always three people roted in to pick up calls in the event that the system detects an issue or an anomaly that it wants someone to look at. And is that fairly reliable? We don't get many false positives or false negatives through that system? Yes, the advantage of the engineers that building the system being the same engineers that operate it rather than having a separate kind of operations centre, as some banks would, is there's a real vested interest in the engineers uh, to make these alerts only fire when there is an issue. Because if we miss an issue, it's a really big problem. We'll have to explain why, but we also don't want to be woken up overnight. Hmm. Uh, uh, And on the other hand, customer service can use those same tools to wake the engineer up as well. Uh, We use a tool called Slack for instant messaging between uh, all the employees, and there's a bot in the Slack channels that you can talk to. Uh, So in a few key presses, anyone can wake up any the engineer on call at any time. And uh, I presume customer services have had to exercise that? uh... Yes, very much so. Um, So particularly during night shifts, if there is a situation and there's only a few customer service reps that are available at the time, you tend to find out, you do a lot of your communication through Slack. Uh, So it's a tool that we've used. Um, We try and use it sparingly, obviously, with great power comes great responsibility <laughs> in terms of uh, waking up engineers. But it is a very, very important tool that we um, find because we like to learn as a customer service rep how the problem originated so that we can properly understand and explain it to our customers. Mm. It's one of the hardest calls to make, I think, deciding to wake someone up in the mm-hmm. middle of the night and for the first engineer who's on call who picks it up deciding how severe it is and whether they need to wake further people up as well. No one wants to be the person phoning someone else at two in the morning saying, we need help with this, especially if it turns out it's not an issue afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's a a difficult challenge, but I guess we err on the side of caution when it comes to uh, things that could affect quite a lot of customers. Absolutely. That's the, the message to the engineers on call is it's okay to escalate. If you're unsure at all, do get in touch. It's much better to be overactive than... Fail to respond, yes. <laughs> Definitely. Okay, um, so uh, let's imagine that uh, there is an incident. Um, something's gone wrong and we've been alerted to it either by our customers or by our monitoring systems or both. Um, what do we do next? How do we organise ourselves in order to tackle this problem? 
Um, so we set up an incident management team effectively and they follow a fairly standard form, although the, the constituent members may change. So there's always an incident commander who's the person responsible for it. Initially, that will be the person who took the call in the middle of the night. Uh, but if the incident is SEV1 or SEV2, they have to quickly wake up one of the three of us who are allowed to be the senior incident commander effectively during a major incident. Uh, but that person shouldn't be proactive in investigating or trying to resolve the issue. They're there to make sure there's enough people working in the right way at the right time with the right skills uh, and that anyone else necessary who needs to be informed is there uh, and to take decisions. Separately, we quickly appoint a scribe if it's a significant incident uh, and they're there just to write down everything that's going on. We're in a very regulated industry. At the end of an incident, we will have to file a, a regulatory filing. So we need a good record of what was on and why the decisions were made and the actions we took in the sequence we took them so that we can challenge ourselves and say, could we do better in, in the future afterwards? So someone's job is there just to write down whatever's going on uh, so we have an audit history for later. Uh, and that means when we wake someone else new up, you don't have to get them up to speed. They can just read the, the frequent summaries in the channel. Every 15 minutes or so, we'll post an update summarising who's involved and what the key points are now. So you can scroll back a very short way, read a quick summary, and anyone joining the incident can get up to speed. Uh, beyond that, it will depend on the nature of the incident. Uh, if it's technical on our platform, there'll be a number of engineers involved uh, investigating the incident. Uh, and if it's relating to one of the payment schemes or something like that, we may wake up the experts for that scheme, so MasterCard or Faster Payments or Direct Debits. Uh, and then a key role is communications. There's always going to be customer noise and some impact of this. So whoever's working on customer service will come in. Usually one of the customer service leads will get involved uh, and they will assemble the communications team that may include social media and marketing. And if it were to become a major incident, uh, potentially the press and that kind of thing as well. Uh, and then the people that are easy to miss, but very important, uh, Anne, our CEO, uh, is usually brought into the Instant Channel very early on. She needs to know what's going on. Her, ultimately, she's responsible for the bank and represents it to the wider world. Uh, so she wants to be up to speed uh, and the second line function that would be easy to forget. Um, so the second line function is? It's something most businesses don't have, but in a bank we do. So there's people, first line are the people who run and operate the bank and take the decisions day to day. Uh, and second line are an internal team, but they're there to check up on, on what we're doing to make sure we're following the right processes and procedures and treating people fairly and communicating in the right way. Uh, and so second line get involved in any major incident, more as observers to to help us and guide and they have to phone the regulator in certain circumstances uh, if i believe if we're out for more than an hour on certain systems we have to phone the regulator so second line get involved because they will be involved in the write-up and the, the audits afterwards and does this uh organization change depending on whether it happens during the day or in the middle of the night do we always use the same sort of uh, structure of these teams yeah the, the basic structures there the size can vary from uh, an incident commander and a scribe and one or two other people working uh, through to 10 or 15 if it was a, a really major incident that uh, we were investigating a lot of different channels at once but the, the, the basic structure is a, a consistent thing that we will always go to very if it's more minor sev3 or sev4 you may even merge the the incident commander and the scribe if there's not too much going on at too fast a pace mm, good okay so we've got this team structure in place um, what about the, uh, the, the comms section? What does that do, Sarah? How do the, how do the communications with customers mm -hmm. work? So usually what will happen when we're alerted to an incident, which tends to happen by a team lead adding you to the Slack channel and kind of uh, messaging you saying, this is what's going on, uh, you read through. And we tend to take a lot of our communication with customers based on what we can say. Um, 
obviously our intention is to help people out and to fix any issues that could be going on um, if we can fix them immediately or if it's just informing customers that there may be a particular system uh, that could be down for a certain period of time. But one of the clearest things that we try and uh, demonstrate is transparency. So we don't want to lie to our customers. Um, we want to be very clear um, and explain to them the incident as best we know it, uh, whether that's during the day or during night. Um, so we'll get usually, uh, from the marketing perspective, uh, in terms of replying to things, we tend to advise people to get in contact with customer service just so that they can have more of a official uh, route of response. But it tends to just be informing people that we know there's an incident going on, that we're aware of it, we're working on it, and just trying to reassure them that mm. their money is safe is the main thing. Yeah. I guess there must be an interesting balancing act taking place between uh, transparency mm. and openly communicating about what's going wrong on the one hand, and on the other hand, um, not giving people false information, I Absolutely. suppose, by mistake, by trying to communicate too quickly. Yes, uh, there is the fear sometimes that you could, whilst attempting to explain everything to the customer, if you initially think one thing, and then 15 minutes later we realise that it's actually a completely different thing that's caused the incident, or it's something that's changed. Um, we don't want to then go back to the customer and say, actually, I was wrong, because that A, doesn't look professional, doesn't instil their trust in us. So it's it is a fine line between being um, as open as we can and then making sure that everything that we've told the customer is something that is correct, <laughs> as yeah. it were. There's always a challenge early on mm -hmm. that we we don't know what the underlying cause is or it probably wouldn't have occurred in the first place and we don't necessarily fully understand the impact of it. Mm -hmm. We know that there's a problem with one of our services or there's an issue somewhere, but we don't necessarily know all of the knock-on impacts immediately. Uh, and sometimes you can end up with what feels like two or three separate incidents running together that you can eventually explain down to a single cause, producing knock-on impacts in other systems and services as well. Mm -hmm. So it can be quite complex to understand mm -hmm. what the problem is and we don't want to mislead. So I guess exactly. communication's real job is to try and minimise the impact on mm -hmm. the customer and be helpful to them mm. uh, and to suggest alternatives and ways around to achieving what they need to do mm. uh, despite the incident that's going on. Mm -hmm. mm. So... Another interesting thought about this this team structure we have is we have a, a separation between this sort of incident commander and scribe position or positions um, and the people actually trying to solve the incident itself. Yes. So what sort of benefit does that bring? Why do we do that? Uh, it allows the incident commander to step back and, and better assess what's going on, especially when we don't understand the root cause. We may have three or four different teams of engineers looking into different areas to try and work out where the problem is. And and ultimately, even if we understand the problem, we can be trying multiple solutions to fix it at the same time. Uh, and so the incident commander needs to have oversight of all the different strands, how they're proceeding, which ones are most likely to yield results first, and also be looking for mitigating impacts as we learn more about what the impact is and how customers are being hurt uh, by this. We're looking for ways to to sort things out. Can we take certain systems off to keep other systems running? Can we stop certain processes and bits of functionality mm. uh, in order to keep as good a service as we can deliver? Because there could be a short-term solution to the, the problem that is not the same as the long-term solution, but yes. will get things up and running for customers quicker. Yeah. And so, so while services are having a problem, can we add more capacity on this service or other services? Or if one machine is proving a bottleneck, can we take that machine out of service, turn that little bit of functionality off, 
which will then clear the queues through the rest of the system to keep up the functionality running. Mm. So the incident commander needs to be looking at what's going on and the, the wider impact and the noise and bringing any necessary people in. Mm. Excellent. So we have um, this team trying to work to, to solve things, but obviously at that point we have the customers out there mm. trying to use their banking functionality. Um, how do we help them to use their banking banking functionality even when certain systems are down and certain things are not working? So if we're aware of an incident happening, what we will tend to do is push out a notification to everyone's apps so they'll... If they open up their phone, they will see a notification from us saying, we have seen issues with, say, using your card um, at a shop or at a merchant. And so we'll advise them to take cash out, which is a very good feature because obviously people aren't then going to attempt to use their card uh, in a merchant. And it will really sort of minimise the mess around it. And it does filter out a lot of people who would be coming through to customer service with issue. The people that then do come through, uh, often asking for further clarification or if they're curious as to why this has happened, um, we can then sort of deal with that when they come through. Um, but we obviously will try and always give a customer alternative if it is an issue with, say, cash machines um, or if it's an issue with using your card in store. It tends to be one of the two. So it's either take cash out or um, attempt to use your card in certain areas or we've had incidents with particular machines so we'll let people know that we've seen some instances of cards failing in say certain shops or certain retailers so just giving them as much transparency up front and trying to let them do their same transactions as smoothly as they would beforehand mm. Yeah, as much transparency as we can. Exactly. As mentioned before. And the system has been built to minimise the impact on these things. It's, it's quite a highly distributed system on the back end. Uh, so, And it's built to expect other components and other payment schemes to be having issues at any given moment. And wherever possible, we just queue the work and wait. So whilst faster payments may be having an issue or one of the banks may be, you can still send payments within your app and we will just hold the payment until such time as we're able to deliver it. Mm. The, the two key interactions that really can't break are the one that authorizes your card transaction every time you put your card in a machine uh, and the one that accepts inbound faster payments from other banks there's a very tight sla on those mm. but we've built them in such a way that they're very highly available for that key bit of the interaction and even if the whole of the rest of our banking system is off uh, your card can carry on working and payments can come in and out yeah Absolutely. And uh, if you're m more interested in that topic, you can listen to our episode on reliability, which <laughs> discusses that more in depth. OK, so we started talking there uh, more about failures uh, in other places or within other providers or schemes that we connect to. Because obviously, if we have an incident caused by a failure in our system, we can, you know, go and fix it. But if there is a failure in a third party system then it's more tricky. We, you know, have less control over that. So how do we deal with that sort of uh, incident? Yes, they can be tricky, actually. I'd say probably now the majority of incidents we experience are with external vendors and schemes and with other banks, uh, and particularly out of hours. They're by far the most likely reason an engineer is going to be woken up overnight. Uh, either internet issues and connectivity issues or one of the payment schemes means we won't be able to talk to it. Uh, or actually we're seeing more and more operational incidents where a system at another bank has made a mistake, ultimately done something it shouldn't have done. And because we communicate in, with our customers in real time, they're aware of this and then reach out to us asking us to correct it. 
Uh, a recent example that's occurred twice in the last few weeks has uh, been one of the big UK banks collected their deducted cash machine payments twice. So if you took money out over the weekend, they charged your card for it on Monday, and then they took the same money out of your account on Tuesday. Uh, and <laughs> that leaves us with a lot of unhappy customers. Yes, our, our customers look at us and say, you've taken my money out twice, and we're like, we haven't. There's this message from the MasterCard scheme that says we have to take this money out of your account because it was authorised, but they've sent it twice, and there's nothing we can do under scheme rules. We have to pay that money to MasterCard. Uh, but when we become aware of it, we will then do what we can, which is typically to credit the customers back, uh, wait for the other bank to send the electronic reversal message a few days later. And then when that happens, we will remove our manual credit. Mm. But these can be quite time consuming process for us when actually all of our systems are up and running and operating normally. So do we take the policy that if this happens, then we just point the finger and say, it's not us, blame them? <laughs> No. <laughs> no. We're responsible for the relationships with our own customers. And so we want our customers to have a good experience and we need to treat our customers fairly and they shouldn't be out of pocket because of issues in the wider banking system. So we will do what we can to make things right for them in the short term uh, while working with people if necessary. Uh, and if it's a vendor or supplier or payment scheme we're connected to, although we're not MasterCard and we don't operate it directly, if there's problems within our network, it's still our card that's failing to work. Uh, so we don't spend our time pointing fingers we will just do what we can to try and resolve it while working in the background to to address the underlying issue uh, we kind of see the customers have the relationship with us and therefore the buck stops with us uh, and the vendors and schemes we choose to work with i don't think it would be a great example for a, if a customer came through uh, to their bank who they keep all their money with they get their salary paid into with an, and then it's an issue going on and that bank just turned around and said well sorry not yeah. us it's not us guys don't Go look over away. here <laughs> here's someone else you can blame for exactly. this exactly um, we, we've got to do what we can to help them whether it's our underlying fault or not actually we much prefer the incidents where it's our underlying fault because we have far more options mm. available to address it uh, usually much more quickly so um finally the incident's over and uh, we've uh, managed to uh, get everything back the way it should be. All the uh, customers are happy or at least, you know, satisfied mm -hmm. that uh, the problems have been resolved. Um, so what then? What do we do to, uh, as we were talking about earlier, learn from the incident and make sure that we can respond better next time or not cause the mistake if it was caused by us? Yes, this is very important. Other than breathing that sigh of relief and the... <laughs> yourself calming down, the adrenaline uh, stopping. Uh, it's important to challenge each incident. And so the, the kind of main questions we answer are, could we have detected this earlier? Uh, especially if there's a lag and it didn't get noticed until a customer noticed. We look at our monitoring systems and say, is there a way we could have picked this up faster, responded to it quicker, started to handle it better? And then we look at the response, the actions we took, uh, whether there's some improvements we need to make in our systems to prevent this reoccurring again, uh, and whether we need to learn as an engineering team and an incident team uh, in how we respond and actions open to us and and what course we can take to deliver different outcomes. Mm. Uh, and so we will challenge that as a team ourselves internally in engineering. Uh, and secondly, if it was a significant incident, the second line function will, will need to look at this as well. Uh, and potentially there may be a, a regulatory submission to explain to the regulator what went on uh, and why what actions we've taken to prevent reoccurrence in the future. But and is it easy enough to do that without blame, I suppose? Because if you go around trying to point fingers at individuals who've committed mistakes, then it's difficult to get an honest answer to what went wrong. Yeah, it's very important not to, to apportion blame in it. 
uh, software engineering is an unusual industry in that respect and in that everything we do is very transparent. The system can tell us exactly who committed any particular line of code at any time. Uh, and so if it is a software defect, it's very easy to pinpoint the person who made that mistake. But we're all human and we all make mistakes. And so we all jump in and respond to it. And it really doesn't matter whose it is. It could easily have been any of us who did this, because usually it's some aspect of the system that we, we couldn't have foreseen this impact. So it's not a matter of blaming the individual. It's looking at, a, as a wider engineering group, what could we have done and what lessons do we need to learn for the future to prevent this kind of thing reoccurring? But it, it's definitely not a blame game. It, that's, mm. that's very important because all of us would have been blamed at some point in the last <laughs> <laughs> few years for some kind of outage. So. Yeah, absolutely. Good. Well, it's nice to know that we're all human. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, that's about all we have time for in this episode. If you'd like to know more about Starling Bank, you can follow us on Twitter at Starling Bank and visit our website, starlingbank.com. You can download the Starling Bank app from the iTunes App Store and the Google Play Store.